Welcome to the Bogart Podcast, episode number one. I'm Evan Bogart, and uh, yeah, we're coming to you live from Bloomfield, New York. Um, what do we? All right, so uh, call into the show five eight five two zero nine three four eight zero. You can email the show, the Bogart Podcast at gmail.com. Uh, subscribe to our Patreon. Get the St. Patrick's Day episode that we just uh, recorded last week. Uh, you can find the link at the bogartpodcast.com for that. Uh, yeah. So I wanted to talk about how I got into podcasting. I've done so many podcasts that um, I wanted to m- maybe go back in history uh, to when I started. So it was back in 2008. I got an iPod Touch. Um, and, uh, I was fooling around with it and I noticed that there was an iPod, uh, app and, uh, you know, I, I screwed around with that and then I came up with, or I stumbled upon the Kevin Smith podcast, Modcast. So I was like, oh man, this is pretty cool. And, uh, after that I was hooked. So, um, and then in 2009, I, uh, started uh the basement podcast with uh david partial and dan raymond uh they were two of my friends from high school that i grew up with and uh yeah so i uh started that um why i picked the name the basement podcast was because i was living in my parents basement at the time and uh when I was doing that, I was having the time of my life. I thought I was on top of the world. And, uh, yeah, and I did that for about until mm, 2011. And then, actually, no, it was 2010 that I ended the Basement Podcast. And then how I explain the next part was a five-year depression that I had. Uh, I ended up working dead-end jobs uh, that I did not like. I was, I was in and out of apartments most of the time I had, or I was on probation for something that was really stupid and I'm not proud of that. And, uh, the worst part was moving back to my parents' house. Um, and my parents never approved of my lifestyle. So it was, it was, it was rough going back. And then in 2015 was the end of the depression. Um, uh, I, my probation was ended in 2015. Uh, I was fed up of living with my parents. So I moved into my girlfriend's house and, uh, I was living with my girlfriend's family and, and then, uh, 2015, I bought my first house. Well, you'd call it mobile home, but I bought my uh, first house, and then uh, then uh, 2016, I started Beer Pirate Radio. Uh, I wanted to be a uh, podcast network and uh, and have many podcasts on the network. Um, so, and then uh, I came up with the name Beer Pirate Radio. Uh, after I created Beer Pirate Radio, uh, I needed some talent. So I asked uh, Dwayne Wilt, 
uh, to come in. And then after that, kind of went downhill. Um, I, uh, I, I could tell other people on the podcasts didn't want to be there anymore or didn't want to do it. So I was like, okay, well, and then I just ended the things, uh, probably like a year and a half later. So, and then I had another podcast in 2019 called trailer park problems, but that was, I didn't feel it and whatnot. So, so that brings us to today. Uh, the Bogart podcast is an audio and video podcast, so you can watch it, um, whatnot. Uh, did a lot of research doing the video podcasting and how to do it. So, and uh, yeah, that's about it. So, uh, what brings us? How long are we in this for? Okay, we're six minutes. We're still good. So, I was stumbling upon the news and I saw this. Uh, um, news story about uh, a guy shooting another guy in a movie theater. Here's that. I'll do that. ABC News exclusive interview with the retired Florida police captain who was acquitted of murder last month in that fatal movie theater shooting eight years ago. Curtis Reeves argued that he acted in self-defense. Self he spoke with Victor Okendo, who joins us now from Miami. Victor, good morning. Good morning, TJ. It has been eight long years. This trial was delayed countless times. There were many appeals and the pandemic hit. But now Curtis Reeves says he is speaking out in part because he wants to raise awareness about attacks on the elderly. He believes that's what happened that day. But Nicole Olson, Chad Olson's wife, says the jury got this one wrong. This morning, the man behind the fatal shooting inside a Florida movie theater speaking exclusively with ABC News. If you could go back to that day in 2014, do you wish you'd done anything differently? Went to another show. In 2014, retired police captain Curtis Reeves shot and killed 43-year-old Chad Olson after the two got into a fight during the previews of a matinee and Olson threw popcorn in his face. Reeves, now 79, was acquitted of all charges late last month. How did the interaction with Chad Olson begin? Well, it began uh, rather mundanely, I, I would say. I simply asked a, a gentleman to turn his phone down. I didn't know him, so consequently I was not rude or anything. It was simply a, a request. And from that, it just kind of escalated. According to authorities, Olson brought his phone to check on his then two-year-old daughter. Surveillance from inside the theater shows Reeves leave to complain to the manager, but when he returned to his seat, the situation turned deadly. I had set back to enjoy the movie, and uh, at that point, uh, I was looking at the previews and then suddenly out of the corner of my eye, he's on his feet and uh, I got hit in the face. You got hit in the face? Correct. There was something that flashed in front of my face and at the same time, uh, my vision kind of went blurry. And is that the point where you pulled your gun? Well, for 48 years, I've carried a firearm, either on duty as law enforcement or as retired with all the proper credentials. It was a uh, at some point, uh, when I realized that he was trying to either reach for me or hit me again or strike me again, is at that point is when I went for the weapon. Olson was fatally shot in the chest. The bullet also hit his wife, Nicole, piercing through her ring finger as she tried to hold her husband back. She spoke with ABC News in 2014. The gunshot wound will heal. You know, it's a finger. The real pain is in my heart. Reeves was charged with second-degree murder and aggravated battery and spent most of the past eight years on house arrest. 
Curtis Reeves uh, was second-guessing himself for eight years because that's what you do uh, if you're a human being and you take someone's life. Um, this was hard on him. In 2017, a judge ruled he could not claim defense under Florida's controversial Stand Your Ground law. His attorneys instead arguing Reeves had no other choice but to defend himself with lethal force given his advanced age. Do you wish you'd left your gun at home? Had I left that, my gun at home, there's a good chance that I wouldn't be here today. Curtis and his wife Vivian, who was sitting next to him at the theater, say they haven't had any contact with the Olson family, but she wants Nicole to know. I have prayed for the Olson family, and she's a young woman, and I sincerely hope that she finds someone else to share her life and to be a good father to her child. I hope she gets on with her life and is happy. Overnight, Olson's wife telling ABC News, for eight long years, I had to wait and try and fight for justice. Even though the jury got it wrong, I will not just accept this result lying down. Chad may be gone, but he will never be forgotten, and I will use my voice to try and make sure no one has to experience what myself and my family had to go through. Nicole also says she wants everyone to know that while Chad was made out to be the aggressor, he was an amazing husband and father. So what I think about the story is that, I mean, you, you're, I think the gun is the last resort when you ha are dealing with people. Like if someone was threatening your life and you had a gun, yeah, I guess you can use the gun, but he just threw popcorn on your face. It's not like he threw a knife or got a knife out and came at you. He just had a, uh, a gun and that was about it and he took someone's life and you know it's just you can't you can't come back from taking someone's life and so I don't know and then the wife at the end saying that like uh, oh well uh, I hope the the wife finds a new person to raise the child or something like that and I, it's like lady you have no say in this because your husband took the life of a father and shit so all right what else do we got hold on one second uh the black panther director um in atlanta got arrested here's that black panther director ryan coogler handcuffed by police after being mistaken for a robber at an atlanta bank this incident was all caught on camera abc steve olsen Sami is in Atlanta with more and what the bank is saying. This was a shocking, a bizarre, and really unfortunate incident here, Steve. Good morning to you, TJ. This is the Bank of America branch where this movie director was trying to withdraw cash. Atlanta police this morning would like to underline that they were just responding to a call of a bank robbery and say that there was even a car running and waiting outside these bank doors. Hey, sir. Hey, man. Come here, sir. Bank of America this morning is saying that what you're seeing in this police body camera video should never have happened. You got weapons on you, buddy? I got nothing on me, bro. On January 7th, people working at one of their banks on the north end of Atlanta called police, saying that the man seen here in the green sweatshirt being put in handcuffs was trying to rob the bank, which wasn't true at all. If you just run my name, you understand why you should take me off these cuffs. What the bank didn't immediately realize is that this is 35-year-old movie director Ryan Coogler, a very successful and wealthy filmmaker 
who doesn't need to rob banks. What up, bro? In fact, the first film he directed was Fruitvale Station, which told the true story of a racially charged police encounter in California where a young black man was killed. I got other plans in my life and this wasn't part of it. He directed actors Michael B. Jordan and Sylvester Stallone in the boxing movie Creed. And in 2018, he broke box office records directing Black Panther for Disney, which remains the most profitable film ever with a black director. It's why he was here in Atlanta in January, filming the sequel to the film. The incident started when he walked into the bank fully masked with a black hat and sunglasses and gave the bank teller a withdrawal slip. On the back of the slip was this note obtained by TMZ saying, I would like to withdraw $12,000 cash from my checking account. Please do the money count somewhere else. I'd like to be discreet. The bank teller and nearly every other person in this incident was also African-American, but she didn't recognize that he was a famous Hollywood director. In the police videos, she tells officers that when she asked questions, he kept quietly pointing her to the note. He just kept pointing, he's like, look at the note. So I'm like, okay. And so I said, do you have your ID? He did give me his ID, it was a California ID, but my stomach started turning, like, I'm like, okay, it just feels odd. She also says he gave them his Bank of America account card, but they still called police. I have police en route. Can you see, are you able to see if he's still there? Uh, I don't want to really turn the corner. When police came, they explained in their report that they determined this was a, quote, mistake by Bank of America and that Mr. Kugler was never in the wrong. He and the two people he was here with were released. I stated to, to officers that arrested me that had, that had their Glocks out. Yeah. That I was pulling money out of my own account. I understand. We have to confirm that because of the seriousness of the call, we don't just come out and unfortunately in a situation like that, you don't get the benefit of the doubt. We detain and then we ask questions later. In a statement, Bank of America says that we deeply regret that this incident occurred. We have apologized to Mr. Kugler. The director tells ABC News that Bank of America worked with me and addressed it to my satisfaction and we have moved on. Banks often have thresholds for withdrawals that trigger warnings to managers, usually above $10,000. And police believe that that's one of the things that happened here. So I think that uh, when you're in a bank, you shouldn't be able to wear masks because they need to identify that person by, uh, by what their face uh, looks like and whatnot. So... I think that um, there should be no masks in banks. And, you know, I wonder if Bank of America, like, gave them a settlement or something like that for this. Because, you know, that's a big fuck up on their part. So, all right. Uh, we're going to take a break. And when we come right back, we'll do more news. And, uh, yeah, we'll be right back. Evan Bogart here to tell you about the Bogart Podcast, St. Patrick's Day Special, only on Patreon. Me and my buddy Dave have drunken shenanigans while talking about things St. Patrick's. Go to patreon.com slash the Bogart Podcast to see more of the St. Patrick's Day Special. And we're back. So, um, yeah. So I have some uh, news articles here that we'll go through and... Uh, We'll talk about them. So, uh, first one is Clay Clarkson's prenup. Here's that. 
If y'all can believe it, Kelly Clarkson and Brandon Blackstock have finally settled their divorce after almost two years of battling it out back and forth throughout this pretty nasty proceeding. According to TMZ, Superior Court Judge Scott Gordon out of LA finalized the terms and signed them. So this is how it will look for Kelly Clarkson, Brandon Blackstock, and their children moving forward. Clarkson is walking away with their two children, River Rose and Remington Alexander. She was granted primary custody. However, Brandon will have them for one weekend a month. Kelly also has been awarded the ranch out in Montana, but Brandon is allowed to continue to live there until the date of June 1st of this year. And until he makes that move from the ranch, he owes Kelly Clarkson a whopping $12,500 a month for the rent. Now, on June 1st, if Brandon leaves the state of Montana, the custody agreement in place will have to be revisited and reevaluated. But if he stays in Montana, it will remain the same for Brandon and the kids. Moving on to the financial settlement. The prenup has remained in place and Kelly won big by holding on to her yearly wage of $20 million a year. Blackstock, however, will still receive spousal support, which is set at $115,000 a month. That payout ends in January of 2024. And even though he only gets their children one weekend out of the month, the court is still requiring Kelly to pay $45,600 a month to Blackstock in child support. And finally, Kelly is also paying Brandon a total of $1.3 million as a part of their settlement. So again, it has almost been two years since Kelly initially filed for divorce from Brandon, and it was a long back and forth battle for sure and containing a boatload of money. So I just don't get um, prenups and all that kind of like getting divorced and getting all this money settlement stuff. And uh, I, I just, this guy is getting $100,000 to absolutely do nothing. And Kelly Carson's got to pay for, for pay for this. So, and then he gets on top of that child support each month, but he only has the kids once, like once a weekend or like one weekend a month. So I just don't get it. I mean, it's, I never got the whole, you know, splitting the money thing after divorce if you don't have a prenup. So I don't know. I think it's just fucking crazy. So that's when my computer died. And uh, yeah, so this is the end of the episode of the Bogart podcast. Uh, check us out on uh, Facebook and Instagram, the Bogart podcast. And uh, yeah. And then check us out on Patreon, um, patreon.com slash the basement podcast and get the St. Patty's day special. It's only $5 a month. It's really cheap. So until next time, take it easy guys.